Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absite podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose a partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. All right, welcome back. It's Absite 2023. As always, Behind the Knife is ready to help you dominate the exam with our 30-episode Absite Review series and our Absite Review book. We also want to share with you what's up next for Behind the Knife. 2023 is going to be a banner year. We are investing big time in our platform, and we are currently working on a brand new website and accompanying iOS and Android apps. The website and apps will include tons of useful features and will make it easier to access all of the exciting new content we are making. Speaking of content, we are expanding our oral board review resources with a general surgery oral board review book and oral board audio review courses for vascular surgery, colorectal surgery, and surgical oncology. We are also almost finished with an incredible new trauma video surgical atlas. This will include 24 beautifully shot and edited trauma video scenarios, many of which have never been captured on video before. For students, we are creating a comprehensive resource designed to help them dominate their surgery rotation. This is no small project and includes written content, original illustrations, audio, and video. We've also created our very own suture kit and knot board with high quality instructional videos for right and left-handed learners. Finally, we are well underway with a full makeover of the Absite Review Series and book, both of which will be ready before the 2024 test. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to learn more, visit BehindTheKnife.org. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. Okay, let's get started. I hope everybody's Absite studying is going well so far. So hepatobiliary part one. This is uh, hepatobiliary is a big subject, so we broke it up into two segments. Let's jump right into it with some uh, high-yield anatomy. So Wu, what makes up the portal triad? So the portal triad contains the common bile duct, the proper hepatic artery, and the portal vein. This runs in the hepatoduodenal ligament. Yep. So the proper hepatic artery, not the common. CBD, proper hepatic artery, portal vein, hepatoduodenal ligament. Uh, Kevin, uh, what separates the left and the right lobe of the liver? Uh, for the right and left lobe of the liver is separated by a cantilese line. It's the line between, if you drew a line between the gallbladder fossa and the inferior vena cava. And not the falsiform. Not the They'll falsiform. try and trick you. It's not the falsiform. It's cantilese line separates right and left lobes of the liver. One thing I just wanted to point out on the portal triad is there is anatomy questions that ask their relationship to each other. Um, and so it's important to remember that the artery is medial to the bile duct and the portal vein is posterior to both of those. Perfect. Yep. They do like to ask that. And it's important to know clinically as well. 
So it's a little bit, it's going to be a little bit difficult over an audio format, but uh, Wu, can you walk us through, just walk us through a visual tour of the liver where there's all these segments and uh, that often come up that you have to kind of know where they're positioned. What's a good way of, of, of thinking about that? Yeah. So again, it's easiest to look at an illustration um, as you uh, look through this, but think of the caudate lobe is that a separate segment. It's segment one. And then break apart the left side and the right side. So on the left side, there's two and three, and those are the left lateral segments. And there's four, there's a 4A and 4B, and those are the left uh, inferior anteromedial segments. Then on your right side, you have five, six, seven, eight. And so the five is the right inferior anteromedial, the six and seven are the right posterior lateral segments, and the eighth is the right superior anteromedial. One thing I think we'll go over later is they'll ask you a right hepatectomy, what segments are removed in that versus a left or an extended right. And so those are how those become clinically relevant in the abs- on the ab site. And they also like to ask, they like to throw in there, they'll give you somebody, a, a patient who has a metastatic tumor and they'll tell you what segments it in. So you have to know if that's, you know, left lateral segment or if that's one of the deeper segments, whether, and that helps guide your therapy as to how you're going to approach treating that or performing a metastectomy. So it's definitely a favorite. It's definitely need to know it. Like Wu said, the best way to do it is open up an anatomy textbook and just have that image in your head and, and know where the segments of the liver are. Uh, so how about the hepatic veins, Kevin? Um, tell me about those. Where do they drain? Uh, how many are there? Right. So you have three hepatic veins. They drain directly from the liver into the inferior vena cava. Uh, so you generally have the right, which drains directly into the inner, inferior vena cava itself. And then the left and medial hepatic vein join together and, and form a confluence and then plug into the inferior vena cava. Okay, great. Uh, there's a lot of some aberrant uh, vascular anatomy that's important to know. There's your replaced right hepatic and there's your replaced left hepatic. So woo where those originate and where do they run? Yeah, so the replaced right hepatic uh, most commonly comes off the SMA. It travels behind the pancreas and the common bile duct. Uh, This is in contrast to the replaced left hepatic, which comes off the left gastric artery. It travels in the gastrohepatic ligament. That's a that's a favorite one to ask is they'll they'll tell you they'll either straight out tell you that a patient has a replaced right or left hepatic and they'll ask you what the origin is. So the replaced right off the SMA and the replaced left off the left gastric. Um, that is especially important when you're doing foregut surgery and you're opening up the gastrohepatic ligament that you don't uh, ligate that or you don't run into that. Okay, moving on to some clinically relevant stuff. Let's start off with some you know basics. This is probably something most people out there are pretty familiar with, which is benign biliary disease. That being said, we're not going to go over the basics of, the, of a, a clinical presentation of gallstone disease. As like I said, this is by this point should be pretty much second nature to most people. But we'll move through this real quick. So, Wu, how do you want to handle somebody who presents with asymptomatic um, coleothiasis? So these patients, you should start with observation. Okay, how about somebody who has uncomplicated symptomatic cholelithiasis? Elective cholecystectomy. Something that gets a little bit trickier is what if your patient's pregnant? So how do you want to manage symptomatic cholelithiasis in a pregnant patient? So here you have to bear in mind that there are higher rates of spontaneous abortion with non-operative management. So ideally, uh, these patients should undergo laparoscopic cholecystectomy, uh, generally in the second trimester. Uh, you would place the ports via an open Hassan technique and keep the pneumoperitoneum as low as possible. Uh, also, try to place a bump under the right side to offload the vena cava. 
Yeah, I think there used to be, you know, they used to try and get, you know, push patients and get them through the pregnancy before taking their gallbladder out. But the, the most recent stages, stages guidance um, is to go ahead and perform your elective cholecystectomy, uh, even if the patient is pregnant, with those uh, uh, precautions, as you stated. Okay, Kevin, how about acute cholecystitis? When do you want to time that operation? So for acute cholecystitis, uh, there's no benefit to cooling off the patient. Uh, so generally, they should be in a urgent setting, uh, taken to the operating room for surgery. So if they come in the middle of the night, the next morning, they should go to the operating room. Yep. So early cholecystectomy is the way to go with acute cholecystitis in a surgically fit patient. Now, what if they give you a patient that's just a disaster, that's just a completely surgically unfit patient? What's the answer then? Right. If it, if it truly is that bad and they have they would not tolerate a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, you can consider a cholecystostomy tube. Okay. And how about once that patient recovers? And then what do you do? Uh, then, you know, they should be planned for an elective cholecystectomy. Right. A cholecystostomy is not definitive treatment, but it is a temporizing uh, measure. Um, okay. So that's cholecystitis. That's cholelithiasis. How about cholelithiasis? This can be a little bit more difficult, a little bit more tricky. So, Wu, what's your approach to the management of a patient with suspected cholelithiasis? Yeah, so there are several accepted approaches, um, and there's a lot of variability between institutions. But in general, if you have a really strong suspicion, so say the common bile duct uh, stone is seen on imaging, or there is clinical evidence of cholangitis or bilirubin of greater than 3 or a dilated CBD of greater than 6 millimeters, uh, you should consider preoperative ERCP for clearance of the duct. Uh, you could also do IOC intraoperatively and uh, also consider a, a common bile duct exploration if ERCP is not available. Okay, so that's that's your your patient who comes in and you, based on their imaging, based on their labs, you're like, this patient has a duct, a stone in, the, stone in their duct. Uh, what about if those ones were maybe they have a few abnormal liver tests, they have a mild elevation of the bilirubin um, or, you know, gallstone, gallstone pancreatitis? Uh, what do you want to do with that patient? So here, both MRCP and uh, just a laparoscopic cholecystectomy with intraoperative cholangiogram would be acceptable answers. Yeah, I think the key there is you have you have a moderate suspicion for uh, for a uh, stone in the duct, so you need to do something to image that, whether that's a preoperative MRCP or whether that's an intraoperative an IOC. Maybe you don't have enough suspicion to go ahead with a preoperative ERCP, but you definitely want to image the duct. Okay, uh, what about uh, an easy one? The low suspicion. Their their labs are normal. Um, and they have nothing on imaging to suggest a common bile duct stone. Here, you really don't need any further investigation prior to the cholecystectomy. Right. And some people will do routine IOCs on everybody, and that's fine. Uh, but that's certainly not required. And, and uh, you don't feel obligated to do that in a board scenario uh, either. Uh, okay. So let's say you had a patient who had a moderate suspicion. You take them to the OR. You do your lap cole, You do an IOC. And you identify a common bile duct stone uh, during your cholangiogram. What are your next steps? Uh, so first, uh, during the intraoperative cholangiogram, once the uh, stone is identified, you should try to flush the stone through. Uh, and using glucagon, if the stone has difficulty flushing alone, could be very helpful. Okay, th those are your first steps. Those are going to be your answers for the first steps is uh, glucagon. Uh, you can uh, um, give that up to twice. You need flush uh, with uh, normal saline. Um, but let's say that doesn't work. And let's say you have a small stone and you have a pretty sizable cystic duct. What's your approach then? 
Yeah, so here the key is that the stone is small and the cystic duct appears large. So if that were the case, you should try a transcystic common bile duct exploration using fluoroscopic guidance, uh, or you could use a colodocoscope. Okay, and how about if you have a tiny little cystic duct and you have a large stone and you just don't think you're going to be able to get there with a transcystic approach? Here, the preferred approach is either a laparoscopic common bile duct exploration, or if you don't feel confident in that, then you could do a post-operative ERCP uh, and all this depends on the resources available to you and the surgeon experience. Yeah, I think you'll see uh, managing these patients, there's a lot of variability in practice and there's a lot of acceptable approaches. So you just kind of have to know the options available. You have to know that you, if you have ERCP available, that's okay. If you don't and you have surgeon experience, you can do either a laparoscopic or open common bile duct exploration. So, so the key there is just knowing all the available options and know that there's a lot of acceptable ways of going about that. Okay, well, let's say you're doing your um, you're doing your cholangiogram and you don't get any filling proximally of your hepatic ducts. You don't visualize your hepatic ducts. What are what are your, your next steps? Uh, you could try to pull the catheter back a little bit prior to flushing again and reshooting the uh, cholangiogram. Uh, and you could also try to place a patient in Trendelenburg to see if there's any uh, change in the imaging. Okay. What if the, what if you do that? You, you, I agree. You try those simple things first. You, you pull, you reposition your catheter. Maybe you put it in too far. Uh, you use gravity to your advantage. So you put the head down, see if you can get some backfilling into those hepatic ducts. But what if you do that and it's still, you see a cut where you see a cutoff or you don't visualize one of your hepatic ducts? What, what do you really worry about? What do you got to do then? Uh, at that point, you would have to convert to an open procedure and investigate uh, and see if there's an injury to the hepatic. Right. And that's going to be the answer. You have a high suspicion that you've, you've ligated or you've injured a hepatic duct. So you have to open to define your anatomy. Okay. Moving on. Kevin, uh, gallstone pancreatitis. Uh, what's your approach? So for gallstone pancreatitis, uh, they will at some point in the near future need a cholecystectomy, um, but you generally do not do it at their initial uh, presentation. Let's start with, they come, they present with gallstone pancreatitis. Do those patients need um, an ERCP to clear the duct? If there is evidence of uh, cholecystectomy or active cholangitis, um, then yes, they would need an ERCP. But if there's just uh, pancreatitis, uh, th there's no role for ERCP. Yeah. So just your run-of-the-mill patient who presents with pancreatitis and you suspect is gallstone pancreatitis, unless they have one of those other indications that you strongly s suspect that there's, um, you know, a big stone lodged in the duct or they have evidence of cholangitis, most of those stones will pass and they don't necessarily need an ERCP. So you initially manage them, you know, medically to cool off their pancreatitis, but how do you want to time their cholecystectomy? It's generally recommended. And I think the abset answer will be during that same hospitalization. Exactly. So there's a very high uh, recurrence rate and that they can have serious sequela. Uh, I think it's upwards of 40% at 30 days. Somebody might have to double check me. That's, uh, but uh, I think that's the, the number. Uh, so the recommendation is cholecystectomy during that hospitalization. So before that patient goes home. So that's going to be the answer uh, on the uh, ab site. How about um, you have severe pancreatitis with, uh, uh, and on your imaging, you see a, a large peripancreatic fluid collection. Um, what about the timing of cholecystectomy in those patients? So in these patients, uh, they're generally very ill um, and their abdomen is not suitable for surgery um, due to the intense inflammatory reaction. So in these patients, is there, this is the one uh, 
case that doing an interval cholecystectomy at six to eight weeks is probably preferred. And they recommend doing an ERCP sphincterotomy uh, to reduce the risk of complications during this waiting period. Yeah, that's the caveat there is, is if with those patients, they need to cool off a little bit, but you have to do something to reduce that risk of early recurrence. So they need an ERCP with a sphincterotomy. Okay, woo. Uh, another favorite that's uh, highly testable, rarely seen, is gallstone ileus. What do I mean when I say gallstone ileus? So this is actually not a true ileus, but rather a small bowel obstruction. And the obstruction is caused by a gallstone that is typically lodged at the uh, IC valve. Uh, this generally results from a cholecystoenteric fistula, and it's usually a fistula to the duodenum. Um, so what's the there's there's a there's a triad I, I think uh, that that's associated with the triad of symptoms. What what is that? Yeah, that's called the Rigler's triad, R I G L E R, uh, and that that consists of a bowel obstruction, a gallstone seen in the intestine on plain film in, imaging, and pneumobilia as well on imaging. And this is going to be another one where they're going to show you they're going to show you an X ray. Um, they're going to show you an x-ray with a bowel obstruction. You got to look down the right lower quadrant. They'll, they'll give you a visible gallstone on the x-ray and they'll give you air, um, in, in the biliary tree. Um, and they'll ask you what to do. So if you get that question, you get that picture, woo, what are you going to do? So the primary goal is to relieve the obstruction. And so you're going to perform an enterotomy proximal to the obstruction and milk the stone back and remove it through that enterotomy. Okay. And then what would you do with the gallbladder? So this is a little bit controversial regarding the cholecystectomy and takedown of the fistula at the time of the enterolithotomy. Uh, in general, I would not do this. The combined procedure has a higher morbidity and recurrence rates are, are low in general. Uh, you can consider doing this in select circumstances, such as with a very stable patient or in a patient with gangrenous cholecystitis. Uh, but so in other words, they really need to be stable or really, really need their gallbladder out. Otherwise, I would just focus on relieving the obstruction and getting out. Yeah, and that's the way they're going to do it. They're going to give you that image um, and they're going to they're going to give you options. They're going to say uh, perform a licensive adhesion. They're going to say perform a bowel resection. They're going to say uh, make an enterotomy, milk the stone back and close your enterotomy. They're going to say do that and then perform the cholecystectomy. The answer is going to be make your enterotomy. Um, and get the stone out and relieve the obstruction and get out. Um, it, it, unless it's some other extenuating circumstances, but 99%, that's going to be the question that you're going to get. Um, okay, Kevin, let's move on to gallbladder polyps. Uh, they're pretty common. They're a lot of times incidentally seen during cholecystectomy, lots of time incidentally found on imaging. What, uh, what are gallbladder polyps and how do you manage them? So the majority of them are benign hyperplastic polyps. Um, but, and if they are symptomatic, uh, that would be an indication for a cholecystectomy. Uh, but if they're asymptomatic, like the majority of them will be, it'll just be found on routine imaging. Uh, you don't need to do anything about them unless they get bigger than 10 millimeters in size. And that's when we get worried about, uh, you know, adenoma to carcinoma kind of sequence. So if they're greater than 10 millimeters in size, they should also have a cholecystectomy. Yep. So that's a good cutoff. 10, 10 millimeters inside is considered, you know, an increased risk of it being an incidental, you know, cancer. So still very low, but still the risk is there. So I recommend cholecystectomy. Um, very, very large ones. So larger than the number is 18 millimeters. If they're larger than 18 millimeters, you, you treat at, as gallbladder cancer until proven otherwise. 
Um, and then polyps over six millimeters will need some form of serial imaging. So, um, you know, serial ultrasounds, if you simply the patient simply doesn't want to do that, it's okay to go ahead and do a cholecystectomy for those smaller polyps just to avoid the need for surveillance. But again, symptomatic cholecystectomy, asymptomatic and small leave alone, asymptomatic over six millimeters, either serial image or do a cholecystectomy asymptomatic over uh, a centimeter or 10 millimeters cholecystectomy and over 18 millimeters treat it like it's cancer. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about portal hypertension. This is a, a, a difficult to, to often conceptualize, but uh, they like answer the, they like asking questions about these things on the board. So uh, Wu, what actually defines portal hypertension? So this is actually defined as a hepatic vein pressure gradient, HVPG, uh, greater than six millimeters of mercury. Okay. Hepat okay. Back up. Hepatic vein pressure gradient. What do you, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So this is the gradient between the wedged hepatic vein pressure and the free hepatic vein pressure. So to measure it, you actually require the passage of a balloon catheter into the hepatic vein under fluoroscopy. Right. So if you have an increased portal hypertension, this will result in portosystemic, uh, you know, venous collaterals, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, splenomegaly, all those kind of sequelae we know that's associated with, you know, cirrhosis and, and portal hypertension. So there's a lot of different causes. Um, and the, the actual site of the increased portal resistance depends on the etiology of the portal hypertension. So a lot of times you'll see pre-sinusoidal, sinusoidal, post-sinusoidal, uh, we'll break that down for us. What, what is, how does that translate? Yeah, so the easiest way to break down portal hypertension, as Jason mentioned, is into these three categories. Is it before the sinusoids, at the sinusoids, or after the sinusoids? So a pre-sinusoidal etiology would be something like schistosomiasis. Uh, something at the sinusoids would be alcoholic cirrhosis or viral hepatitis. And beyond the sinusoids, you could have Bud Chiari syndrome. Yeah, that's a good way, like I say, that's a good way of breaking it up. It is somewhat of an oversimplification as a lot of disorders will cause uh, increased pressure at several different locations. Uh, like primary biliary cirrhosis is a good example that has both pre-sinusoidal and sinusoidal elements. But uh, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. And uh, sometimes you will be asked, you know, where is the site? You know, what kind of, what kind of portal hypotension is this? So Kevin, how about uh, some of those some of that collateral circulation we were talking about. Uh, where are where do people form collaterals if they have portal hypertension? Right. So this is where the splanchnic venous system meets with the systemic drainage. Um, and when you have portal hypertension, your splanchnic system is overwhelmed and high pressure, so it's going to preferentially drain into the, some of the systemic drainage sites that have lower pressure. So uh, one of the more common ones we think of is the distal esophagus as you get esophageal varices, and that's what this is. And then you also see those in the proximal stomach. Um, you can also see this in the rectum. This is from the inferior mesenteric vein, which is your splanchnic draining into the systemic, which is the pudendal vein. So you'll get rectal uh, varices there. And then you also see classically in the textbooks, you'll see the umbilicus. And this is from the your uh, umbilical vein, your vestigial umbilical vein uh, recanalizes um, to the left portal vein. And so your umbilicus will have uh, varices around that. And then you also see them in the retroperitoneum with the mesenteric uh, draining into the ovarian veins. Okay. So, you know, uh, this is one of those things where medical treatment is the first line for, for portal hypotension. So, uh, Woo, what are some of those pharmacologic treatments that uh, the patients with portal hypertension get put on? 
Yeah, so for medical therapy in the acute setting, you want to think about splanchnic vasoconstrictors, so vasopressin or octreotide. Uh, additionally, non-selective beta blockers can be very helpful for prophylaxis, and these comprise natalol or propanolol. Yeah, and then, and then you have some of your other, you know, uh, other treatments like endoscopic variceal banding for your esophageal varices. How about tips, Kevin? What's tips, and when do you want to use that? Yes, this will definitely be a question on the ab site. Um, so this is the patient that has um, acute or recurrent variceal bleeding, refractory ascites, Budd-Chiari syndrome, or hepatic hydrothorax. Um, and the whole point of this is to decompress the portal system, and this is done uh, through an endoscopic fluoroscopic uh, method. Um Okay, woo. So let's let's move on to a patient who has esophageal varices and has an acute esophage, esophageal variceal bleed. Uh, what's your management of that patient? How are you going to approach that? So for this patient, you want to start with your standard measures of resuscitation, uh, transfuse if necessary, start broad-spectrum antibiotics, intubate the patient for airway protection, uh, start octreotide, and then you want to move quickly towards endoscopic treatment. If the patient has uncontrolled bleeding, even with endoscopy, then I would move towards a tips. And what do you, if you're going to do that though, they're bleeding, they're bleeding and you're, you need to take them for tips. Uh, what, uh, what do you have to do? What, what do you need to temporize them with? Yeah. So the temporizing measure here would be balloon tamponade. Yeah. So like your Blakemore balloon and all those things that, uh, is a very scary situation if you ever have to do that. So let's say that you get initial endoscopic, uh, control of the bleed. You do all those things. You resuscitate. You type and cross, you transfuse, you start antibiotics, they're intubated, you start an octreotide drip, you do your endoscopy, you, you get a little control, and then uh, a couple hours later, they, they bleed again. What, what do you want to do then? So here the patient has had uh, initial endoscopic control and has rebled. then I would go for a second attempt at endoscopy. Yeah, it's not that dissimilar to other upper GI bleeding. You, the second endoscopy would be the answer, but then they need their tips. So um, either you get control endoscopically or you do your Blakemore balloon, but they, they, but they need tips. And one quick thing on tips, it's so it is a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. And so through the internal jugular vein, the interventional radiologists cannulate the hepatic vein and basically make a stent between the hepatic vein and the portal vein, which allows the portal vein venous pressure, which is high, to drain into the hepatic veins and then into the systemic circulation and the IVC. And this is how you get um, control of the and, and reduce the uh, portal pressure. And a lot of times uh, when patients have had these in the past and they come in with recurrent bleeding six months later, you want to start with an ultrasound of the tips to make sure that the stent still has flow through it and is draining from the portal system into the systemic venous system. Yeah, it's one of those things that it just blows my mind that it works. And I, I somebody had a lot of guts to try that for the first time, I think. I don't know who figured that out. Uh, so since t we see a lot less surgery for portal hypertension, uh, since, uh, since the advent of tips, but let's briefly go through some of those surgeries. So Wu, what are some of your different surgical options, uh, for portal hypertension? Yeah. And again, as Jason was saying, these are generally reserved for a very select, uh, set of patients. So in patients with extensive portal venous thrombosis and no portosystemic shunt options, you might consider gastroesophageal devascularization. Okay. And what's another one? So in another setting, you might consider esophageal transection with division and anastomosis. 
But again, this is rarely used ever since TIPS has come into play. And you, now, you mentioned devascularization. So what, what is meant by these devascularization procedures? So this is essentially a total devascularization of the greater curvature and the upper two-thirds of the lesser curvature, uh, as well as a circumferential devascularization of the lower uh, 7.5 centimeters of the esophagus. Okay. You also mentioned something about portosystemic shunts. Now, I know there's selective shunts. There's partial shunts, there's non-selective shunts. What, what do we mean by that? Kevin, why don't you take us through this one? So selective shunts, uh, is generally you want to go from selective to non-selective. Uh, so the selective shunt, the, the common one is the splenorenal or Warren shunt. And this will decompress only part of the portal venous system. And this is good for variceal bleeding, but does not help ascites. Um, and so... There's also a partial portosystemic shunt. These are types of side-to-side shunts where the flow is calibrated by the size of the synthetic interposition graft placed between the portal vein and the vena cava. Uh, and then, of course, you have your non-selective portosystemic shunts. And these will provide wide decompression of the entire portal venous system um, by doing something like a side portocaval shunt. Um, but these have high rates of encephalopathy and complicated uh, they complicate liver transplants later. Yeah, so this is something where you kind of have to think about what your problem is. And, and I've, I've seen at least, you know, practice questions laid out like this where they give you a patient and their main part problem is, you know, um, variceal bleeding um, and not a main problem with ascites, then something like a selective shunt would be the way to go. Um, if their main problem is ascites, uh, you need something like you need a non-selective shunt with the understanding that that's going to potentially worsen any encephalopathy. Okay, so that's about as much of portal hypertension I can take. Uh, for some reason, I, th- I find that to be a very confusing topic, but hopefully that'll help you get get a few more points uh, on that test. Um, so let's move on to another very, very common thing is a liver abscess. Uh, so they'll generally ask about three different kinds, a pyogenic, amoebic, and econococcal. So, Wu, what is a pyogenic liver abscess? Yeah, so of those three categories, the pyogenic abscess is the most common. It comprises over 80%. Uh, It's secondary to biliary tract infection, with E. coli being the most common pathogen. It can also happen secondary to spread from a GI source, such as diverticulitis or appendicitis. How do you treat a pyogenic abscess? And you treat these with percutaneous drainage as well as antibiotics. Okay. So that's your pyogenic abscess. That's your most common. Those are bacteria from a GI source, uh, most commonly from biliary tract infection. Uh, perk drain antibiotics. Kevin, amoebic, abs- amoebic abscess. So these are the patients that have just gotten back from traveling to South America or Mexico. Um, these can be diagnosed based on imaging findings, and you also want to get serology on these patients to confirm the diagnosis. Um, and these patients generally will respond to flagell and, and rarely need drainage of these. Okay, last one. Uh, yeah, so amoebic abscess, don't, don't drain those. Treat those with flagell. Um, woo, uh, echinococcal cyst. So echinococcal cysts are essentially hydatid cysts. Uh, they have a characteristic double-walled cystic appearance on CT scan. Uh, also for these patients, just like your amoebic abscess patients, make sure you check their serology. And to treat, the uh, medical management here is albendazole, followed by surgical excision. The key is not to aspirate or spill because spillage will cause anaphylaxis. Perfect. Okay, well, I think that's a good place for us to to break with our part one of the hepatobiliary. But before we do that, let's do let's do a couple quick hits. Uh, okay, Kevin, what's the pressure, hepatic vein pressure gradient uh, typically required for a variceal rupture? It needs to be at least 12 millimeters of mercury. Okay, and we said earlier, what's the definition of portal hypertension? 
uh, portal hypertension pressure is, begins at six millimeters of mercury. Yep. So six is a definition of, of portal hypertension. You need, need about double that or 12 before you get to the variceal rupture. Uh, woo. Um, the, the child's Turcot Pew score. What are the components of that? So bilirubin, albumin, prothrombin time, encephalopathy, and ascites. Yep. So that's your child score. Bilirubin, albumin, PT, encephalopathy, and ascites. How about the MELD score? The MELD score is thought to be more objective and contains the bilirubin, the INR, and the creatinine. Okay, great. And so at what, what MELD score has it been shown to have a, patients will have a survival benefit with transplantation? 15. Yep. So uh, you need a MELD score of 15 before you're, you'll have a survival benefit from uh, having a liver transplant. So Kevin, uh, common test question, important to know in real life, um, especially with uh, yeah, the increasing levels of cirrhotic patients in the United States. Um, how do you manage a patient comes a cirrhotic that comes into you with an umbilical hernia? So you want to attempt to reduce this uh, as quickly as possible, but you also want to make sure that you do everything possible to get medical control of the ascites um, before they need an operation because that will significantly complicate the operation. Yeah, so let's just say they're, it's a reducible umbilical hernia. You know, they, they come into you because it's causing them a little bit of pain. So how do you want to manage that? It's not incarcerated. It's not strangulated. How do you want to manage that? Um, so at that point in time, you can have them, you know, get on optimal medical management and just have them follow up for discussion of elective repair. Okay. And what if medical treatment's not working? Um, so then, you know, you have to do intermittent, um, I'm sorry, intermittent paracentesis, uh, temporary peritoneal dialysis catheters, or potentially a, uh, TIPS procedure, uh, to help control the ascites. Yeah. So if you're doing an electoseni, get them absolutely medically optimized to, to re reduce any chances of uh, recurrence and chances of complications during the procedure. You have time on your side, use it. Uh, in an elective setting, do you want to, do you want to use mesh? You want to close primarily? How do you want to do that? Uh, these patients have a high risk of recurrence, uh, due to their intra-abdominal pressure. So I would, I would use a mesh in the elective setting. Okay. What if you have a patient that comes into you that their MELD score is, is 20, they're on the transplant list and they're, they're telling you, yeah, this, this bothers me. Do you want to fix that? Or what do you want to tell those patients? Uh, hopefully that they can wait to get this repaired at, to, at the same time they get their liver transplant. Yeah, that just makes sense. If they're getting, if they're already on the, if they're getting a liver transplant, take care of the hernia at the time of liver transplant. Um, so that's, th those are the easy ones. What about the complicated ones? If they come into the ER, they have a big red, angry, incarcerated, strangulated umbilical hernia. What do you do there? Unfortunately, uh, these are very difficult, but you know, you, your only choice is to operate on them. Uh, so you must repair these urgently and you can't use mesh in these situations due to the concern for infection. Uh, so in the cases we've seen of this, you, uh, reduce it, reduce the hernia, close in multiple layers. Um, and you want to close the peritoneum because your biggest problem postoperatively is going to be drainage of ascites. Um, and then you want to have aggressive ascites control post-op. And so sometimes people actually leave intraperitoneal drains to help drain the ascites to let the fascia and peritoneum heal um, before removing those drains. So let's, but let's, let's be very careful when we say that. Or when you say leave an intraperitoneal drain, are you saying put some JP drains down inside the abdomen and get out? Or are you saying something different? So you want to have a drain that you can control um, be, due to the potential that they could um, drain too much and become hypotensive and, and 
low protein. Yeah. Steak. So I know some people are doing that with their umbilical hernia repairs and their, um, in, in their cirrhotics with ascites, leaving like a temporary, you know, catheter that can be closed off, not just laying JP drains in the, inside the peritoneum. Cause those are going to drain liters and liters and liters. And you're going to be, you're not going to be able to keep up with it. Um, I think the more common thing is to close and then perform intermittent uh, paracentesis to control SIDs, but there are some places that are doing those temporary catheters. But I probably wouldn't answer that because uh, I would stay away from leaving drains in, a, in the board type scenario. Uh, okay, that does it for hepatobiliary part one. Um, everybody take a break, go outside, do something, go for a run, and then come back for part two. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.